Apologies for the third verse of the song. I don't usually type those out by hand. I copy them from a, a page, and I think the one I copied from, for some reason, had a different third verse than what was in the hymnal. So I'll, uh, I'll check that, and we'll get it adjusted before we sing it again. As we look at our passage this morning from Leviticus 25, let me ask you two questions. Is it wrong to own slaves? Is it wrong to own land? Many people today would say that slavery is absolutely wrong in any form, and a smaller number would also say that property ownership is similarly immoral. What then should we do with a passage like Leviticus 25, where both property ownership and slavery are regulated instead of condemned completely? Is this just an artifact of outdated thinking and irrelevant in a modern, enlightened society? Is this a sign that God changed His mind and now things are wrong that used to be fine? Instead of seeing Leviticus 25 as irrelevant or as a sign of God changing His mind, we should learn from this passage that we are to treat people and property justly because God owns all. Let me show you two verses here as we begin. First of all, verse 23. The first principle is that the land, moreover, shall not be sold permanently, for the land is mine, for you are but aliens and sojourners with me. And then verse 42. Verse 42 says that the people belong to God. They are my servants whom I brought out from the land of Egypt. They are not to be sold in a slave sale. So this passage teaches us that the land, particularly of Israel, belongs to God though He permitted the Israelites to dwell in it. And the people of Israel belong to God because He redeemed or delivered them from the Egyptians. So what then does that have to do with us today? How do these two principles affect the way that we live? First of all, we see that God owns the earth. We see this from other passages as well. Certainly here the focus is the idea that God owned the land of Canaan, the land of Israel, right? But there are other passages that make it clear that God owns the entire earth. The earth is the Lord and all that is in it, right? Why does God own the entirety of the earth? Why is it His? Because He made it, is the simple answer that the Bible gives us. God made it, it belongs to Him, and so anything that we do with the earth that belongs to God is merely in the form of stewardship, not as the ultimate person who owns everything, right? So what principles do we then see from this passage? Well, first of all, in verses 1 through 7, we see this idea that they were to let the earth rest periodically. What was the interval that God established for them? Just as there was a Sabbath in which they abstained from working once each week, there was also a Sabbath of years where they were to not plant or harvest any crops, right? And why was it that God had them do this? Some people would say, well, it was to allow the earth to rejuvenate. And that is true. There is something to be said for letting land rest so that all the nutrients are not exhausted. But even though this anticipates modern principles of farming, crop rotation, growing cover crops to restore the soil, that's not really the main point, right? What's the main point of why God said, let the land rest? Because if you don't plant crops for a year, what do you then have to do? You have to depend on God. It is completely up to God whether you have enough food. This is very similar to what God did with the manna as they're wandering through the wilderness, right? God said, I'm going to make it rain manna. 
The day before the Sabbath, you'll have enough for two days. You don't go gather it on the Sabbath. In the same way, they were not to do the normal uh, planting and harvesting that they would do in a Sabbath year. They had to rely on God to have produced enough crops in the sixth year to last them into the seventh year and the eighth year until the crops come in. And I think that this perhaps is echoed in the New Testament, in the Lord's Prayer, right? Jesus says, pray then in this way, give us this day our daily bread. We, too, have a sense or should have a sense of dependence on God for even very basic things like food, right? We tend not to have a keen awareness of that because in America, most of us have never really gone hungry, right? Perhaps that's been your experience at some point, but the vast majority of people in America, even those who are considered poor by American standards, are hugely more wealthy than really poor people in other countries, right? We're not starving for the most part, right? We may occasionally go hungry, but we're not starving. And so the awareness of having to depend on God to provide food for us, to depend on other people to provide food for us as God works through them, is not really part of our daily experience. But this was something that God built into the lives of the Israelites so that they would trust Him and depend on Him and lean on Him and realize that He was the source of all blessings that they had. Furthermore, not only were they to let the earth rest, but they were to return the land to the original owners every 50 years. So there was a designated time where land would go back to the person who it belonged to. This was connected with the fact that when they entered the land, they were going to be assigned particular portions of the land. And that part of the land was theirs to watch over and to keep, and for their children and grandchildren, great children, grandchildren after them also to keep. And so if you had a scenario in which that land was sold and could never be returned, then essentially you had a perpetual poverty that all of the generations after that would experience, right? Because there was no other, it, it, there, weren't, there wasn't more land for them to get, right? It was already assigned to everyone else around them. And so the way that God provided for them was if they became penniless and were unable to provide for themselves, that land could be sold to meet their needs, but after 50 years it would come back to their family. What principles do we then see from this section with regard to the way that we think about property ownership? The first one is that you should not cheat someone out of their inheritance because they are in need. We see this in verses 25 through 28. If a fellow countryman becomes so poor he has to sell part of his property, his nearest kinsman is to come and buy it back. If he has no kinsman, but he can redeem it, he shall calculate the year since its sale and refund the balance to the man to whom he sold it and so return to his property. But if he has not found sufficient means to get it back, then what he has sold shall remain in the hands of its purchaser until the year of Jubilee, but at the Jubilee it shall revert that he may return to his property. Think of the attitude of Lemuel in Proverbs 30, verses 8 and 9. He says, God, don't give me so much wealth that I am tempted not to trust you. Don't give me so much poverty that I am tempted to steal. Rather, meet my needs. In this context, there is also the principle that we see, for example, in Micah 6, 8, where God encouraged his people to do justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with their God. We see this principle even echoed in the New Testament with regard to 
James chapter 2 in the context of the church, not showing favoritism to people based on their economic circumstances, not taking advantage of people based on their economic circumstances and treating them worse because of them. Instead, God's people, the Israelites, were to treat one another fairly, even in times of great need, and provision was made that what was theirs would not be perpetually lost forever. Building on this, there was this idea of not cheating people in property transactions. So we see this, for example, in verse 14 through 17. If there was a sale made because someone couldn't pay their debts, the sale could not be for 500 times what the piece of land was worth, right? It had to be according to the number of years that were going to elapse until the Jubilee, right? So there was, in this sense, not an unregulated uh, value of the land, but God said, here are the limits. You can't charge more than this is worth. You, it's based on the number of years, the number of crops that you're expected to receive from the land. So what does that look like then today? Well, uh, Psalm 62.10 says that we're not to trust in extortion. Uh, Luke 12.33-34 talks about storing up your treasure that is in heaven. Um, we are not to think that our provision for our needs is solely dependent on our ability to scheme and angle and, and back people in a corner to get what we want, right? Is profit immoral? No. Is, um, should there be, um, for example, so there's discussions about capitalism versus socialism versus hybrid forms of economics, right? In this particular context, this was not pure capitalism because God set parameters for it. But it was a fair price, right? It was not something that was forced on the people. It was not uh, from the perspective of, it wasn't a king that was setting the rules. It was God, right? It was not supposed to be a scenario in which people were taking advantage from one another. Think about last year when certain basic supplies were in short supply, right? There were rules and parameters that were set that basically uh, attacked the idea of price gouging, right? In this case, it's not so much an interest of avoiding price gouging and capping profits so much as it is regarding fellow Israelite as your countrymen and not treating him unfairly and unjustly and oppressing him and uh, taking advantage of him, right? So it's not primarily about profit and loss. It's about how do you regard your neighbor, right? That's the thing that God was trying to teach them. Building on this, there was also the idea that there were, they were allowed to transfer wealth, but there was a distinguishing between excess wealth, which was houses in walled cities, and what was necessary for them to live, their livelihood, fields or houses outside the city. For example, in verse 29, if someone sold a house in a city, he had a year to get the money to buy it back. After that, it passed on to the person and he could not redeem it, even in the year of Jubilee. But if it was a house in a village, if it was a piece of property, that would revert in the year of Jubilee. Why this difference? Why, why would God make this diff exception to the rule? I think if we consider what's going on, someone having a house in a city, in the, in the context of, think about, for example, Lot, right? Why did Lot end up moving into the city? 
because his wealth had increased, because he wanted to be a part of all of the life that was going on in the city, it was not essential for his flocks that he have a house in the city, right? What was essential for his flocks was a place to grow the food for them and pasture land to graze them on, right? The house in the city could be taken or left. The fields was what was most important for him, for providing for him and for sustaining his family. And so when we consider what this looks like, I think the danger that we fall into when we forget something like what's taught here is that instead of seeing the basics of our life needs being met and being content with those things, we have a desire for an unlimited sort of wealth, right? It's not enough just to have my needs met and a secure future. I'm, I'm saving a little bit of money every month. I'm uh, paying my bills every month. We want more, right? And so an attitude that says, all of it is mine, and all of it should always be mine, is contrary to what this passage is teaching. This passage is teaching, don't take advantage of someone and steal their livelihood, but it's not saying everyone deserves massive amounts of wealth, right? Why should we even consider that at all? Well, Jesus talks a lot in the New Testament and the, uh, other, and the apostles as well about the dangers of loving money, right? Jesus says, for example, that where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. It says you can't serve God and love money at the same time. If we look at James 4, we see James condemning the rich, not because they were rich, but because they trusted in their riches, right? Uh, we see in 1 Timothy the idea that there are many who have sought to be rich quickly and in pursuing after riches instead of pursuing after God have brought great trouble and difficulty and suffering in their lives. And so if we buy into the lie that we deserve not just our needs to be met, but every single thing we could ever possibly want needs to come to us and we need to have it now and no one should ever be able to take it away from us, we probably are loving money and not God. Whereas this passage says, God has provided for your needs. You may be blessed. Maybe sometimes that blessing is no longer there in terms of material wealth. But God wants you to be able to meet your basic needs. This parallels what it says in 2 Corinthians 8 9. The goal was not for every church to have the same amount of money in their bank account. The goal was that basic needs would be met and as God blessed and gave more than what was needed for those basic needs, that those in turn would share from God's blessing to help those who are going through times of difficulty. And that would rotate through all of the assemblies of the church so that needs were met and the work went forward. And just as Paul partnered with the Philippians, like we looked at this morning, God's ministry and his kingdom would be advanced. There is also one more interesting thing on the discussion of the land that God had given to them, which was, what about those without a regular inheritance? Consider the Levites, right? They did not have the same type of inheritance as the rest of the Israelites. How did God take care of them as well? Well, if we look at verses 32 through 34, it says, As for cities of the Levites, the Levites have a permanent right of redemption for the houses of the cities, which are their possession. What therefore belongs to the Levites may be redeemed, and a house sale in the city reverts in the Jubilee, for the houses of the cities of the Levites are their possession among the sons of Israel. 
but pasture fields of their city shall not be sold, for that is their perpetual possession. For the Levites, they didn't have houses in the villages. They didn't have land in the same way as the rest of the tribes. They had certain designated cities that they lived in, and those houses in those cities were the inheritance of their families. And so God said, those need to be able to revert back to them even if they become poor. The pasture fields where their flocks graze, that's necessary to their livelihood. That's the food that feeds them as they bring people bring sacrifices to the temple. And so, again, instead of that being taken away from them in a time of poverty, God wanted their needs to be met. So, by way of application or principle, there are those who would argue that provisions in our country for things like housing allowance for ministers are immoral, right? They're showing favoritism to a particular uh, religious organization. But along the lines of the Levites having their needs met, I don't think that something like a housing allowance for a church, for a pastor, for someone doing full-time missionary work is immoral. Rather, it's in line with the principles that we see in this passage. The main principle from the first part of the passage, God owns the land. It's all His. So He has the right to say what can be done with it. Verse 23, It shall not be sold permanently, for the land is mine. So to answer our first question, is property ownership immoral? The answer is no, but instead of thinking of it as an unlimited right to own property, as perhaps some of the people uh, in the days of the Enlightenment would have discussed, so you've all heard in the Declaration of Independence and in uh, the Constitution and in many of the writings of the people around that time period in history, right? They talked about the idea of rights to life and to liberty and to property, right? I'm not saying all of what they said was wrong, but the biblical context is this. Everything is God's. He loans it to you for the duration of your life. So while the, for example, the Native American idea that no one can own any property because it belongs to their gods or it belongs to all the people was false in that the object was incorrect, they did have a point in the sense that the property is not mine simply because it's mine. It's loaned to me by God, so I need to do my best to be a good steward of it, right? Can we unravel all of the wrongs that were done in the expansions of countries and empires and all of those sorts of things at this point in history? I don't know that there's even records in all the world to substantiate all of those claims. Much like if sin has been committed in the context of a marriage or a family or the church, we can't always undo all of the consequences of it, right? But I think we do need to have a proper biblical attitude toward ownership of property that says, it's God's, He's loaned it to me, am I doing what I can with it to honor Him? Building on this, God owns His people. By extension, Paul makes this point, for example, in his sermons in Acts 12 and Acts 17, all people in the earth belong to God because God has made all people. But particularly here in this passage, the point is that God owns his people who follow him and serve him. Of which, theoretically, that was all the Israelites, but we know that not all of them faithfully did. What principles then did God give with regard to if all the people belong to him, how are we to treat people? First of all, in verses 39 through 46, or 39 through 41, if someone became poor and became in service to another Israelite, that service had an expiration date. How long was it? 
until the year of Jubilee, verse 40. It was not slavery as in viewing that person as property, at least in terms of one Israelite to another. Why? Well, the reason that was given was because they belonged to God, so they couldn't belong to someone else as well, because God was the one who had redeemed them from slavery in Egypt. What was the nature of their service? It was to work until either they had paid off their debt or until the year of Jubilee took place. How should those servants be treated? Even bearing in mind principles like in Proverbs that the borrower is servant to the lender and that while not slavery, there is a form of servitude associated with debt, even in our society, people need to be treated with dignity. Colossians 4 and Ephesians 6 talk about, even in the context of the church, how were masters supposed to treat slaves, most of whom, I don't know the exact percentage, but many of whom would have been slaves due to reasons of debt. How were they to be treated? They were to be treated with dignity. Don't treat them with cruelty. Don't forget that you also have a master in heaven. Remember that they belong to God. (coughs) When we come to the end of this little section, verses 44 through 46, we do have a difficult problem. And that is that it seems as though the passage is saying, verse 44, as for your male and female slaves whom you may have, you may acquire them from the pagan nations that are around you. Verse 45, they may become your possession. Verse 46, you can use them as permanent slaves. When we read a passage like this, I think we understand slightly better why there were the conflicts that there were over the subject of slavery in the history of our country, Great Britain, other places as well. Because if you read a passage like that, it seems to be saying it's okay to take slaves from other nations, right? But we need to consider the context in which this statement was made. And that was this. Israel was God's chosen people. God, at various times throughout the Old Testament, tells them to exterminate certain groups of people, tells them to um, bring certain groups of people into slavery or service to them, allows them to take the property of other groups of people away and make it their own. And many people would look at those things and say, well, those things are unjust. How could God possibly do that? Well, again, we have to back up and see what's going on. The Canaanites lived in the land. But whose land was it? It wasn't the land of the Canaanites. Ultimately, it was God's land, right? So God had the right to say, the Canaanites are going to dwell here for four generations until the Israelites come back. And if the Canaanites have not repented, the Israelites are going to drive them out. And that's exactly what took place for the most part, except for when Israel failed to do what God called them to do. They were living in idolatry, they were committing gross immorality and murder and all sorts of other sins, and they did not repent. God brings judgment on them, drives them out, puts the Israelites in their land. What happens to the Israelites when they behave the exact same way? They're driven out of the land, they're sold essentially into slavery to other nations, they're in the captivity in Babylon and Assyria for generations, right? So, a couple of factors that we need to consider about how this passage has relevance to modern discussions and concepts of slavery would be to say, are we Israel? 
No. Is slavery something that we should practice today? No. And I think we see that from the New Testament. We'll get to that more in a moment. Um, when it was practiced, what was God's attitude toward it? God did never said particular things were right, but He regulated them. What I mean by that is, think about, for example, in Exodus and Leviticus, there was the whole discussion of if you find a woman in captivity and you want to make her your wife, you can't then divorce her and keep her as a slave. God regulated their behavior, sinful though it was, in order to protect those who were in a place of vulnerability in their society. But if we go back to the Garden of Eden, what had God said about marriage? What had God said about people as individuals? They're created by me. So if people are created by God, we would say in, there is a real and true sense in which no one person can own another person because they're made in God's image. They can't be owned. They're not property, right? You step into a society in which slavery is common. God doesn't immediately eradicate the slavery, but he regulates it to protect those who are in that vulnerable position, right? When the Israelites behave sinfully, God then allows them to experience the same sort of things that they had done to other people. When we come to the New Testament, we have words of Jesus and of Paul and others that point back to those foundational principles of God having made the world and point to a hope that just as it is true that in Christ it doesn't matter if you're a slave or a free person in terms of your being accepted by God, and Paul says if you have the opportunity to be freed from your service, take it in 1 Corinthians, we see a, a movement toward going back to the original plan of God from the perspective that all people would treat one another equally as made in God's image, not buy and sell one another as slaves. Probably one of the best examples of this in the New Testament is Paul's plea to Onesimus on behalf of Philemon, where he says, or rather to Philemon on behalf of Onesimus, where he says, here's what I want you to do. Receive him back, not just as your servant, not just as your slave, but as your brother in Christ. So there was a sense in which the two of them would walk into the assembly of the church, and they were equals. They would walk back out here, and there would be a relationship of responsibility and oversight, right? So what does the Bible have to say about slavery? Is slavery right? Is slavery wrong? The short answer is that it's complicated and we have to take all of these things into account. God's original design, all people are equal created in my image. What's the reality of the nations? In battle, they would capture other people. They would treat them as slaves. They would be in service sometimes for generations. Should it be a slavery from which there is no escape with no expiration date, which no, with no opportunity to purchase freedom? I think it's very clear that that's wrong from the perspective of going back to God's creation design. Why does God permit the Israelites to do it then in the book of Leviticus? Again, for much the same reasons that God permitted polygamy and divorce. Why? Because God recognizes that people are sinners. What, how does Paul think about all of these sorts of issues? 
The times of ignorance God showed great patience and mercy and did not immediately punish everyone for every last evil thing that they had done. But what about right now? Well, what else did Paul say in Acts 17? There's a day coming when Jesus is going to call all people into account for the things that they did. There was a stronger case to be made that though it was not right for all the things that the nations did in the Old Testament, many of the things that they did, they did in ignorance. God has revealed all of these additional things now, which means you don't have the excuse of ignorance. So, if you say, I'm going to oppress someone and steal their property, if you say, I'm going to enslave someone and steal their freedom, you can't claim to do so in ignorance, standing at this point in history based on what God has revealed. What is it that we look forward to in the future? All people standing as equals who have believed in Jesus in God's presence. Creation, you're made in God's image. God's kingdom, all those in Jesus are as one on equal standing before God. In between, life is messy and disastrous and sin is complicated. That doesn't mean that we, try to, uh, that we ignore it. That doesn't mean that we make excuses for it. But it does mean we have to wrestle with all of these issues. So was slavery in the United States right? The United States is not Israel. So while there are principles here that perhaps could be considered, I don't think that people who used a passage like this as a justification for owning slaves or doing any kind of proper biblical hermeneutic. Because the United States is not Israel. God didn't say to the United States, you can go get slaves from other countries and that's okay, but you can't enslave a fellow person in the U.S. Is it wrong for people to enter into a kind of servitude in connection with debt? I think most of us have done that, right? If we've ever bought a house, potentially if you've bought a car. I think as long as we recognize the biblical principles that the borrower is servant to the lender, that the person who is doing the lending is not to extort the person who's doing the borrowing, I don't think that that's immediately immoral. But in an ideal world, what would take place instead? In an ideal world, we would say, this person needs this thing. I will give it to him with no strings attached. There's a lot of factors that complicate that in our world today, right? But that would be the vision of it, right? That's what took place in the early church. Here were people who had needs. People said, I'm going to sell what I have and help you with your need. That's the vision the Bible lays out for us, right? But in those scenarios in which the Bible's vision is not realized due to sinfulness... God regulates and says, here's what you can and can't do to protect the rights of property and people's lives. For example, even those who were in service to outsiders were not able to be perpetually enslaved. We'll say, well, how could God force people who were not Israelites living in the land of Israel to follow these rules? And the answer was, ultimately, all people are under God's authority, whether they acknowledge it or not, right? And what was it? Who had the primary responsibility to come deliver someone from service to an outsider, an alien, a stranger in the land? It was their family. In verse 48, one of his brothers may redeem him, or his uncle, or his uncle's son, or one of his blood relatives, or if he prospers, he may redeem himself. What principle do we see then echoed in the New Testament that 
correlates to what we see here in the Old. 1 Timothy 5. There were people in the church who were widows who had needs. Who had the first and primary responsibility to help them out with those needs? It was their family. And then secondarily, when the family couldn't or wouldn't, then it was the church that would take care of those needs, right? And so we see ties between these Old Testament principles and what we see in the New Testament. And we see a movement from God's original creation design to the corruption of the fall and long swaths of human history in which various kinds of sins were not immediately done away with, but were regulated to minimize their harmful impact. And then we see the vision that all this sin will be done away with. Christ will reign perfectly. When Christ reigns perfectly, what will be true? People will recognize the earth is the Lord's and it's not ours. He grants it to us to, to enjoy under his authority. What about with regard to people? Can people buy and sell one another? We know they certainly have throughout history, but the creation design is all people are made in God's image. And the thing that we look forward to in the future is all people will stand on equal footing before God. In Jesus, as God's people, or apart from Jesus, as God's enemies. But not on the basis of whether they're slave or free, or rich or poor, or male or female, or what nation they're from. The only thing that's going to matter in that day is do you come before Jesus as one of His people or not as one of His people? Now, all the songs that we sang this morning with this idea of redemption, we're not really talking about redemption of property or of a person from physical, material circumstances. The greatest and the most important redemption that we can experience is being bought out of our slavery to sin, being bought out of our objectification as sinners. And while the main point of this passage was about physical realities, property and freedom and service, you come to the New Testament and you have the fascinating reality that you could have someone who was owning no property, perhaps not even possessing freedom himself, but was free in Christ and had the promise of the inheritance of riches with God. And that would give hope. And so the ultimate and the most important freedom or possession that we need to be concerned about is not our material possessions, not our personal freedoms, but whether we have an inheritance in Christ and whether we have freedom from sin or whether we're enslaved to it. God owns the land and God is the one who grants people an inheritance with His Son. God owns people and God is the one who grants freedom from sin. And those are the possessions and the freedoms that we should be most concerned about. And so as we think through these complex issues, the thing, rather the person, that we should be most focused on is Christ and what His coming and what the hope of the gospel offers for us in connection with following and knowing God. Let's pray. Dear Lord, as we look at your word together, there are many 
many difficult things to consider. Things made difficult because we are sinful people living in a sinful world, which has a long history of sinful actions. doesn't make those things okay. It doesn't mean that we necessarily should continue in them. But Lord, we see your mercy even in the way that you worked in the cultures and societies of the ancient world, how you work even in our world today, so that we might acknowledge that all belongs to you, land and people, and most importantly, those who belong to you are those who have an inheritance with Christ and who are your people through the ministry of Christ. Lord, may we be in that number regardless of any other circumstances of our lives. And may we remember that together now as we take your table together. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.